Friday lunchtime lectures at the Open Data Institute. So hello everybody and a very warm welcome to Friday lunchtime lectures here at the ODI. Welcome to those in the room and to those who are watching through the live stream. I should point out that today's lecture is being broadcast live on YouTube, so your contributions, if you wish to make them, will be part of that YouTube stream, just to make you aware. So please use the hashtag ODI Fridays to contribute to discussions, to post any questions that you'd like asked here today. As you may have noticed, Paul Maltby unfortunately can't be here to join us today. So today, instead, we're having a very impromptu discussion about Brexit, the impact of that on UK open data policy and open data more generally. So we invite you to join us in that discussion. Please be as open as you wish and as you are comfortable to do so. The ODI has published a blog, which should have gone out at one o'clock today, around its statement around the, uh, the Brexit result, uh, the referendum result, sorry. And you are welcome to have a look at that for some further context. And my colleague Peter will be going into more detail. My name is Rachel Leach. I work here at the ODI. I'm head of the network team. Peter. Hi, and I'm uh, Peter Wells. I work in the policy team at the Open Data Institute. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. So a nice surprise for everybody, hopefully. But we do have some questions that have already been inputted through Twitter um, and through our team and our wider network in the UK and around the world. We have a network here at the ODI of nodes, our international and regional franchises, and also our membership network is global. So we've got some input from them already. Um, and I'm going to kick off to Peter for a question from uh, one of our external attendees in the room today. And that is, there was talk of an emergency budget. Will the UK government data programme see its budget and the simple answer is we don't know. The things are uncertain. Uh, as people may say, I've been singing Stingray, the old British television's show around the office. Anything can happen in the next 30 minutes, as we live in. Lots of changes happening and people making rapid decisions. They'll continue to do so. I'd expect that, I suppose, over the next few days, we'll see some clarity about whether that, whether that commitment slash threat of making an emergency budget will be carried through. I think it'll be after that we start to see what's happening. I mean, against that, there's the if the markets are affected, some of the recession impacts <coughs> kick in. There could actually be an alternative. We could be see a commitment to actually grow things and invest to actually create new opportunities and growth. So those things will come through. The government's obviously been working on a digital strategy as well, which was due to be published in a few weeks' time. Maybe that'll be a month or so's time. Who knows? I'm sure that digital strategy will give us a bit more clarity about what's going on if the, if no emergency budget happens. Thank you, Peter. I should point out, by the way, if anyone else wants to join us on the panel, you are very welcome to do so. You will be on the video, but please feel free to duck in as you wish. Did anyone in the room want to chip in with a question at this point? Yeah, I can ask a question. Please. Yes, my question you. is, I think, is uh, you just mentioned a digital strategy. Yep. Which kind of a digital strategy if the country is so divided? If there are, you see, the, the election showed to you that UK has no strategy. Now, the question of going to the digital is worse. Yeah. And how then do you expect, if there is no strategy, that the economy of UK will grow? On the other side, mm -hmm. in Europe, at least they have a strategy. 
at least they have this smart strategy specialization on how to allocate for different countries, for different regions, yeah. the funds. Now, even this one is missing. So where is going to go UK without strategy? Thank you. Good question. The, so I think that even, <coughs> so yes, the UK is clearly you know, divided. I think the final results were roughly 52%, 48%. You know, and that varies in different regions, Scotland, Northern Ireland, one way, one way Wales, another way Cornwall, voting, you know, leaning towards exit, uh, London leaning towards Remain, so myself, my, my hometown's in the north, uh, they voted towards exit. The, but even despite that divide, you know, there's still a strategy that can be developed, so there needs to be prog continued progress, it needs to happen, things will still continue to be built, things will continue to be grown, you know, the country doesn't stop we work out how to bring ourselves back together we carry on forward as we do that i think there's a there is a real question around the eu's impact on that strategy and that negotiation you know it's we don't negotiate one way only it's a two-way negotiation the eu's got a say in this as well as the uk and often that's forgotten in those things and what that's going to mean is going to be interesting to see what happens so as those things work through i think we're going to see more of that the, I mean, so it may be that we see a, a shorter term digital strategy, one which is maybe seen through to. So, you know, so David Cameron has announced today he is resigning. He wants a, a leadership process for a new Conservative leader who, unless other events happen, becomes the Prime Minister. And he wants that to happen over the next few months. So, again, there's that political dimension there whether that new leader wants to put their stamp on the digital strategy, whoever that may be, wants to put their stamp on the strategy. Just a period of uncertainty. It just might mean it's a very short-term strategy with some general guiding principles. So how do you Re see the data in framework of strategy now? The, sorry, can I repeat data, the question? Data. The, so how we see Open data. data. So what, what we're certainly seeing is, so we can expect, you know, given the predictions, the economic predictions that were being made about the impact of Brexit on the UK's economy, and that's certainly, you know, coming through at the moment with the initial reactions from the market, Obviously, that's initial reactions. Markets, they shift around, they fluctuate. So you can certainly see that there's going to be a need to focus both on public sector efficiency and on economic growth to counterbalance those impacts. You know, and we've always seen that data is something which can help with both of those aspects. Openness is necessary. Openness helps people work across boundaries. That's why you know, our, our piece that went up today was called Data Knows No Boundaries. You know, we're from the web. The web knows no boundaries. The web knocks boundaries down. It's what it's done for... The last 25 years, it's going to knock a few more down. This is maybe just another boundary that will get knocked down. But in that strategy to counterbalance you know, the economic impacts of, of the recession, if, a potential recession, the things that were already happening in the country, data plays a really vital part, and openness is a really vital part of that data strategy. That's our opinion. What do you think? I don't think, I mean, my, my, my opinion is that the European Union has got a strategy has already allocated funds for all the region of UK, including England. Now, in this strategy here, this means what you needed is actually data. That's what I'm working on. Yeah. There is no really uh, unified data-based or open data, we can say, with analytical tools and with a policy. Recently, I know that the UK government has allocated a headquarters on smart strategy specialization in the UK to see who is doing what and where is doing what in order that you can start to bring 
let's say, to generate investment, idea, anything related, once you know where to go. <laughs> In such a way, you don't know where to go. Yeah, it's going to be tough. I think, Peter, the question you can't see behind you and that's on, on the wall for those in the room and for those on Twitter is from ODI in Leeds, who I know are live streaming the lecture in their room. We've got a lovely picture of them enjoying that in Leeds. The question from them is, will open data be closed for business now? I think you've partly touched on that already, but you may wish to reiterate on that point. I wouldn't expect so. That would seem a strange outcome, given what's going on. I mean, the UK government's been, you know, the UK government has been a world leader in open data. The It's number one on one of the measures. It's number two in one of the other league tables that are done. You know, the UK government has been seeing those benefits. And it's seen those benefits still, you know, even recently with places like DEFRA, Environment Agency, Food Standards Agency, opening up more data and seeing more benefits because of that. The... So it would seem strange to completely reverse that path and make it close for business. I mean, there's going to be short-term challenges, but it would seem a strange decision given how much UK government's been getting out of open data to stop doing that. Again, if there's different opinions, speak up, because debate is good. Which I'm sorry, this is not strategy. This is a policy. I mean, when I say digital strategy, this means a strategy developed by the data. That's completely different. Everybody has strategies, but the problem is to have a strategy developed by the data. This is what the UK government is trying to do now, at least they start. It's different. Otherwise, it's, it's the same type of approach, policy. Let's say, I want this, it's a consultation phase, but it's not really based on knowledge, on the data. And this is my, my, my point. Okay. Is there anybody else in the room who would like to ask a question or contribute an opinion at this point? Please. If you don't mind introducing yourselves, if you would like to, then you're welcome to do uh, so. Just a question. Um, this seems to be a, uh, a characteristic of what went on with the Brexit debate, where the expert was looked upon uh, in a, with a different light than historically. Now, does open data and the education of people to understand data, you know, data literacy, really have a part to play that enables people to make more informed decisions where there has been no clear baseline of what really the situation is? Um, I'm not saying it's a failure of open data, but I think is there not something from a data literacy perspective we need to think about more broadly? Yeah. The, absolutely. The, so I think the referendum was certainly, both sides made statements that nobody believed. Both sides made statements that the other side didn't believe. You know, there were, only, you know, one side was warned by the Sussex Authority, the other, another side was certainly using it. Again, there was, you know, different misleading statements, and that kind of damaged the debate. It was kind of unhealthy. The... And there's something there to learn of uh, the push the UK has been making towards getting more data available and saying that this data can help you making for more important decisions. Why hasn't that cut through? You know, even despite the work of you know, organisations like ourselves or Statistical Society, Full Fact, with the work they've been doing again to bring clarity to those debates. The, so that, you know, I was looking at that a little bit this morning and thinking about it. And there's a, you know, politics is inherently, it's head and heart. 
you know, politics is inherently emotional as well as logical. It's inherently human. That's really good. You know, we shouldn't just be making things purely with our heads. It's got to be our heart as well. The, but if we're not getting those messages through, if we're still finding that statements are being made that do not link through to data, and people are comfortable with that, then it's how do we change that expectation? How do we increase that literacy so we get to a point where people are saying, how can I prove that fact, or can I prove it? But then we're going to get find another layer where people say, nothing can actually be proven. You know, because there's always conflicting claims, but that data literacy is going to... I've still got hopes that data literacy is going to get there, but we have to expect, accept it's always going to be head and heart. I think that's probably a good thing. And a related question, Peter, from one of our members, not around data literacy, but in this case, data protection. What do you think Brexit means for data protection laws in the UK? And whilst Peter's thinking about that, if anyone else would like to contribute, you're very welcome to do so. So we've just got the... So the EU is just... Uh, a few months ago, the EU passed the... or approved and signed off on the general data protection legislation. Mm-hmm. So the GDPR... Uh, regulation, sorry, the GDPR, which is a... And so it's actually breaking new ground across the world for some of the data protection regulation, the way it's putting citizens in control of their data and building more protections there for citizens. The, the GDPR has also got a really interesting facet that it's extraterritorial and it was explicitly designed like that. So it's designed to affect if you are delivering services to EU citizens, then the GDPR applies to your company or your business and the way the data of your business or your government and the way data is being looked after like that. I think in the UK, you know, as a UK citizen, most of the services I receive will also be being delivered to EU citizens. Therefore, they're probably going to be GDPR compliant anyway. As a British business who's looking to grow a market, I'm probably going to be building something that can be used by EU citizens. So we're probably going to find they have to be GDPR compliant. And then with the you know, things like data localization and free flow of data, and what we've seen around the privacy shields, kind of some of the fiascos around the movement of data between the EU and the US and back and forth on safe harbour and privacy shield. I suspect we'd find in the negotiations the EU would be saying, maybe you should just be compliant with this bit of, you know, put something in place which is equivalent to this legislation, functionally equivalent. So I suspect we'll find the, the UK outside the EU looking to apply something very similar to, if not the same as GDPR, and most businesses and services are likely to be similar as well. So that's one, yeah. And hopefully, Stephen on Twitter, that answers your question. But if not, please feel free to come back with the hashtag ODI Fridays and we can continue that discussion. Did anyone in the room want to ask anything? No? Okay. In which case, we'll move on to Kyle in Leeds, who's posted on Twitter. Many people believe Brexit is likely to sorry, will reduce London's and the UK's standing in the digital economy. Is that a likely outcome? Yes. The, and obviously it's a great opportunity for Leeds to further increase its already great standing in the digital economy, the, which I know will get, hopefully getting a big share in ODI Leeds. The, you, know, the, you wouldn't actually expect it to. I mean, if nothing else in the short term, there's a... A message that some people are, are thinking that they are hearing from the UK and from UK and from London, and that's going to affect you know, people's decision whether they choose to move to London and start a business here or whether mm-hmm. they choose to stay here. So that will certainly be affecting things. And there's another facet, I think, actually, on a London versus, on London regional basis 
of maybe, again, some people thinking about why the nation is so divided and why we've got those different perceptions and digital strategies as well, is, you know, so much of the benefits of being in the EU, I don't mean the actual the funding coming back from the EU, but the, the economic growth the UK's had over these last 40-odd years have flown to, have come to London rather than being spread more equally around the UK, and maybe that's something, again, we'll start to see over the next few years as things unpick themselves and people and politicians and the political establishment work out what's going on and why. So I think that could be interesting. So I think there's actually an opportunity there, I think, for a bit more equivalence across the UK. I'll certainly hope that that happens, as a Northerner. <laughs> a proud Northerner, as, no as a very proud Northerner. <laughs> Anyone like to add to that? I'm going to keep asking. Please don't feel that you need to or, or are obliged to do so. So, Tim, again through Twitter, has not told us where he is, but he would like to ask, what data sharing agreements does the UK have with the EU and how might they be affected by the result? The honest question, I don't know, and I don't think we know because data sharing agreements aren't easy to pass and find. Uh, it's one of the things we actually put back to UK government in a recent consultation on better use of data, about the, which is mostly about data sharing within the UK government. There was no list of data sharing gateways in place, and making, making that list open would actually be a good way, again, of helping with the negotiations, helping people understand impacts on what could be impacted or not impacted. But we need a bit more openness and transparency about what those things are. At the moment, I just don't know. Do you think that's something the ODI is likely to take a strong standpoint on in the future? That's interesting. We actually didn't put it in today's thing. It's possibly something we should be looking at a bit more. Mm. And then again, that would help. You know, it would help citizens and businesses negotiate through this tricky period and understand where they need to lobby in some cases to keep things in place. And say, please don't miss that out in these negotiations. That's a, good, it's a really good question. Thank you for that point, Tim. We'll certainly build that into the, the blogs and policy points we're putting out for future. Really good question from Beck on Twitter, who says, if the ODI could have a seat in the EU, UK, exit negotiations, what one thing would it negotiate for? I think we'd have to create a Google Doc and look for suggestions. We love a Google Doc. Because <laughs> that's kind of where we'd start. <laughs> I'd, I'd write in Lego, more Lego. Because <laughs> I tend to start off with a frivolous suggestion, but we'd go out and we'd, we'd debate and discuss on that and discuss that with our network and uh, our, the network of the nodes and the members and ourselves and see what people think. It's one of those things that should be in there. I think that's a really good question. But to, suggestions from around the room. To put to the room, yeah. Silly, wacky suggestions, very welcome. Sensible ones, just as welcome, of course. What would you guys like to see negotiated for? As a negotiation, let's go forward. Did you want to add? Well, better not say. I will. <laughs> better not to say. <laughs> I would suggest, uh, let's say, issue was economics and migrants. Mm. is face this problem with data. Because yeah. this you can do it now. This means if you have the data, then you see if really what they say is the data bring to the, let's say, uh, object. Mm. So perhaps rather than what would we negotiate for, perhaps the question could be better rephrased as what is the key challenge that we would like data to address going forward? So migration and issues surrounding migration for yourself. Because you don't have a strategy. Where are you going? I mean, it's the traditional way of doing business. 
want now you have a new technology and that have uh, advanced tools where the, the digital economy mm. should be pushed. Actually, you are in a better position on the digital economy issue. Does anyone else have a view as to what, what challenges data could help us face going forward? Gentleman behind. Please take the mic if you'd like no, I've to do. Got a question after oh, please. This one, so. Let's move uh, to a question in that okay, case. Please take the mic if that's okay. Thank you. Um, so, in light of the decision for Brexit, what do you think that the EU can learn about openness and transparency? My, I just chip in my view. I think sometimes when a bureaucracy becomes so big, it actually leads not towards transparency towards a, a kind of mystery and people can't understand it and there's so much legislation that it's just confusing. So I was just wondering your views on that, what the EU can learn. The, I mean, there's a good point. I mean, in some of the work we're doing, certainly getting to grips with what is happening within the EU, the stage that a particular regulation or piece of legislation is at or interpreting the text is very difficult. You know, there's certainly not, it's not an accessible institution to understand what's happening there. If anything, even less accessible than our own parliament. But, you know, people, organisations like My Society have been helping us make that more accessible. And there's similar national things. I've not quite seen something like that at the EU level. The, so, yeah, there's certainly a good point there. The, I think there is a thing as well of expectations of transparency that something something which is speaking for, I think it's 600 million people in the EU. It was 600 million people anyway, it still is today. The, you know, something which is looking after that many people, how transparent can it actually, how accessible can it actually be? Because necessarily it will be complex. Democracy is a complex beast. Not everything is like, you know, direct democracy doesn't work for everything, representative democracy for things. There's, there's always checks and balances and there's always complexity and, and friction in democracy. That's kind of what holds it, holds it instead sometimes. But, uh, but as there's a, but democracy is a user need, and we need to make sure we can get sufficient grasp on it, and that can be sufficiently explained to people. And there's more things flashing up behind me because I can see Sam looking over my shoulder with a look of glee on his face. <laughs> <laughs> Did you want to add a response? Um, no, that was it really just to say about the, you know, the bureaucracy that there is and mm. the paperwork that goes into it so I think that was that's quite sufficient for now so thanks other questions from the room yeah. I'm gonna go for a, uh, a question from someone called Manticlops on Twitter yep which may or may not be his or her real name <laughs> and may or may not be a bot <laughs> how was that you Sam no okay how can we preserve data in the face of and I quote savage bands of raiders <laughs> I'm trying to picture them now uh, by making it as open and decentralised as possible as easy to use even if anyone to copy use share use as they will by decentralising ourselves we're resilient against those kind of by, by decentralising and proving our value you know that's how we put off such challenges. Fantastic, thank you. Raiders of the Web, there's a movie in that. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> don't know if Harrison Ford would be up for that. But. No, possibly not, given no. his performance in his last movie. Don't his last Indiana Jones movie. But. Um, okay, so a question from Ian on Twitter. How do we compensate for the soon-to-be-gone EU drivers for government, such as Share PSI or Inspire? Those are going to be t- so share PSI for those. So share PSI is about public sector information. The and it gives some uh, regulations and guidance around where governments must open up that data. Uh, Inspire is I can't remember what Inspire stands for. It's another cool acronym. The which someone in the room may know the answer to, but it's talking more about map data, land data, environmental data, and all those good things. Uh, which certainly environment agency DEFRA and those organisations have got a lot of Inspire data. The those and bits of those are EU directive slash legislation that have been translated into UK legislation mm-hmm. over the next over the two years from the point where the UK says we're now leaving and presses the big button and it's the Treaty of Lisbon. Those things will get on, be unpicked. It will be those ones in particular will be quite fascinating to see how they survive that debate mm-hmm. and do. You know, does the data community in the UK essentially have to lobby for those to ensure similar protections? And a post-EU world in the UK. So those ones in particular will be quite interesting, I think. And tying into that from Paul, again, in Leeds, our large Leeds contingent down the line today. Yep. Paul asks, have any of the Brexiteers spoken about a plan about data and innovation in a post-Brexit world? I haven't seen that from the leaders of the campaign. Now, those weren't the topics that were really in the campaign as such. Mm. And in that debate, I've, I have seen views from people who are individual members of the grassroots, you know, the, of people who have been campaigning for exit, who come from the world of data and innovation and technology. Mm-hmm. The, you know, at least one of those things where you say, yeah, certainly there's going to be a short-term impact, but there's an argument to say, again, in the long run, the web and openness wins, whether we're at the boundaries of national states, uh, city levels or global levels. So there's still a potential there. There's certainly still an argument there to say in the future the UK can continue to move. There's actually an argument I've seen some people make that the UK may be more nimble if it's not having to move at the pace of uh, the same pace as 27 other countries and can move at its own pace. You know, that then relies on you know, our own civil service, our own legislature in the UK to be able to you know, embed that in nimbleness and agility to be able to do that. But there's an, there's an argument there. Does anyone else want to contribute? Please. Don't mind taking the microphone so that people down the line can hear. Thank you. Um, so in the referendum, do you think there are, outside of the EU, still opportunities to collaborate with those sort of things? Mm. And should we be driving at that sort of more local level, that city-to-city connection, rather than the sort of national level? If, if I can add to that as well, not just on a city level, but we have a comment from ODI's node in Cornwall, that Cornwall has an EU programme worth about £500 million to 2020. Um, and ODI Cornwall would like to know how open data can support sustainable development. So we need to remember to focus not just on cities, but on other yeah. regional areas. 
of the UK and beyond. Sorry, Peter. Quite right. Uh, cities, cities are already collaborating uh, between the UK, other EU nation states, and other states and other nations across the world. So that's already happening. It's, if you talk to the team, for example, down at Bristol, you know, with Smart Bristol, Bristol is open, those kind of communities, they're already working with countries in, you know, with places in Korea, in China, in America, there's you know, vast groups across America, there's the Open 311 software that was built in America that's been used in some UK local authorities. So that kind of collaboration will certainly still happen. If it's standards-based, it's about soft power. You know, it's people choosing to do these things, it's people choosing to work together to make the world a better place and to build better services and get better use out of data. So I think that will certainly happen. Whether that should be a focus, you know, more or less of a focus, that's a tricky one to debate, I think. But Cornwall's got, I think Cornwall's got a slightly different challenge of that they're currently a, a big inbound recipient of EU funding because... Although we often forget, I think the stat last year, I don't know if it's still true, was that seven of the ten poorest regions in the EU are actually in the UK. Mm. You know, and Cornwall is one of those regions. Cornwall, I think, is one of those regions. It's, you know, after the closure of the, the tin mines and the, uh, the tin mines, the copper mines, the fishing, etc., etc. Mm. The So there's an argument, no, so there is a thing there where you know, I know some of the money that is that was going into the EU and then was being passed out from the EU back into the UK. There's been various promises made as to where that should go. You know, Cornwall, I'm sure, has got its hand in the air right now saying, OK, can we keep getting the money that we were getting before now? The, and should we making, again, a database case to say, here is the money we were getting, here is how much the UK was remitting into the EU. This portion, if people are saying that was just nestling back to the UK, can we have it directly, please, and come? Westminster still keep giving that money back out because again that's the way it should work and places like Cornwall they do need support great let's keep that going as I well know I was born and brought up in Cornwall so I uh, I experienced firsthand the need to move elsewhere to yeah. gain a job and that's why I work in London at the moment hmm. does anyone else want to add to point to if you don't mind taking the microphone thank you Sorry. thanks the reason why I mean, this fragmentation happens because UK government, and this is also happening in Europe, not just in UK, they do not give attention to the rural area. Yeah. And uh, I think data, uh, open data, they are crucial now. Because with data, you can better identify the program project in a rural area. You can link with the cities and how you invest. This something is not from the UK, I can say. Even in Europe, yeah. this is lacking about this one. I come from the south of Europe, for example. I see for 20 years of EU funding, there is no, let's say, there is no an impact. Why this? Because data are not there. And this is, a, a, let's say, this is a, something that I'm involved with now in the UK, innovation or research project, or how you can exploit better the data, especially the data satellite for development. And I think that ties in nicely to a question from Rob that's just come through on Twitter, uh, which is around the, in his words, flood of new legislation, which will come in to re-regulate around the changes. Um, And Rob asks, how can open data help people to stay on top of those laws and those policies going forward? You need not just open data, you need a strategy linked with open data. Yeah. Otherwise, there's no meaning. But, but I think there's a, almost a specific thing there, just the amount of legislative change that will come through. 
how can people be notified about that change, discover it, and, and try to influence it? The we, we're kind of lucky in the UK that we've got a we have legislation.gov.uk, which is a brilliant tool and resource for. Mm. But it's actually collaborative maintenance of our legis of parts of our the data about our, the UK's legislation. It's collaboratively maintained by a group of organisations. The and being able to try, and then we have parliaments who've been working on their own digital strategies and policies, so the Parliament Digital Services, to make information about Parliaments and what's flow, flowing through there more accessible. I think they're due to start a beta or an alpha or beta of their new site is going in, starting in two months' time, I think they're moving to, for the Parliament Digital Services. So there's a good point there, I think, of that's going to become quite more important to help people. I mean, as well, if we look at it, if we look at this as a... A demonstration of democracy, the big turnout in the EU referendum. Now let's start channeling that towards the after effects, the negotiation, the legislative debates. And let's try and make those more informed with more data in there, but let's start trying to channel that democratic engagement. That'd be quite useful. It's a really good idea in there. I can feel another blog. <laughs> <laughs> They're always uh -oh. brewing, aren't they, Peter? <laughs> um, I should point out as well, this is a day where a lot of opinions are being uh, put forward and the ODI has put forward its own blog in light of the result of the referendum. But as we're in a time where there is so much uncertainty and there are lots of questions to be answered, I'd really genuinely encourage you, if you have questions, no matter how silly you may feel they are, if you're thinking it, someone else in the room will be thinking it. So I'd encourage you to feel empowered to ask those questions you're comfortable to do so if you're not so comfortable in a group format please twitter or come and speak with peter or i or a member of the odi team after our discussion today i think we'll go for a couple more questions and then we'll uh, we'll wrap it up for today um, we've got one from tim on twitter asking who will be championing the uk's need to access the eu digital single market I think multiple organisations and MPs will be doing that. There'll be organisations like the OD Open Data Institute, Tech UK, mm. I imagine will be in there, the Coalition for Digital Economy, uh, Tech North, the uh, Scotland will certainly be will certainly be championing it with some of the work going on in the Scottish Government. Mm. There you can already see some of those statements there. They're talking about access to the single market as a whole, but the digital single market is in there. The, and I think we, we can certainly expect multiple MPs as well to be championing that and making sure we get as good a deal as possible on that strand. Now, the UK has had a quite a big reasonable influence on what's going on in the digital single market initiatives, and that's going to be quite important to keep that going. Because as we can see with the general data protection regulation, you know, the initiatives under the EU digital single market will continue to affect the UK. So it needs to continue pushing and being having a voice in that. I'm glad the ODI, the Open Data Institute, will be a part of that. Are there any other questions in the room? Please, if you don't what mind taking Swift do? <laughs> uh, For those that didn't catch that down the line, what would Taylor Swift do? Oh, she would instantly cut a new album. Uh, she'd do it openly. She might learn. Post breakup. She might, yeah, she, well, she might learn a bit from Kanye West and the way that he developed his last album in an open fashion by releasing an early version of it, taking feedback from the audience and then improving it. So I think Taylor Swift has got something to learn from Kanye there. And she can bring a little bit of the cheeriness and happiness of Chance the Rapper as well. I'll, I'll so, so. <laughs> and from the room, there was a song no, called. I she has a song called 
She has a song called Stay, Stay, Stay. That's which, new information. But she might not, but she might let her audience vote on whether to release that one or the other version. <laughs> the because you know she's she's becoming more open and democratic because she's been listening to what the uh, the Open Data Institute has been saying and what we've been talking about with the lessons from Kanye West and Chance to Rapper. That's our serious answer. Thank you, Peter. <laughs> it's much appreciated. I said two last questions. I've got two last questions because I want to end on a really positive question. Um, and this question is perhaps more tricky to answer for everyone in the room. Meryl on Twitter is asking, does Brexit prove the UK public don't understand statistics? And we very much welcome comment from the room. This is not necessarily a data, in Open Data Institute related question. Does anyone have a view? Someone in the room says no, proves that the public don't understand statistics. I've got a nod of agreement in the room as well. Did you want to add something? Uh, I was just going to say, why should they understand statistics? Um, you know, actually, I mean, it's interesting in terms of a younger generation coming through. Um, and I'm talking about you know, children in school at the minute and how mm. much more digitally sort of engaged they are and actually... You know, their awareness of how to use social media and the web is the future where, you know, that's where open data is going to be, isn't it, you know, in future standards. So it'll be interesting to see what they think in their, when they reminisce in 20 years' time and uh, we're looking at the back of this. And, and they'll say, well, you know, if only our parents understood statistics. Mm. We'll see. Very interesting point. What will the future say about today's result? Who knows? But hopefully, from the Open Data Institute's point of view, this will be an opportunity to affect positive future change. Absolutely. And our blog today, I would implore you to read it. Um, the main message from that is that data knows no boundaries. And I would encourage you to take that to your hearts and to work with us going forward to take that message out there. Exactly. Let's keep building a better future. Very last question from Alex on Twitter. And I promise this is the last one. <laughs> What is the silver lining to all of this? Alex seems a little concerned there isn't one and would like some reassurance from Peter on that. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, there's a silver lining in everything. The world, the, uh, I woke up this morning, there were riots on the street, there was a loads of sunshine, the world is still there, I'm gonna be able to walk home now. There isn't the run on the banks that people were predicting last week. You know, the, all these kind of things, that there's always a silver lining, there's always a better day, there's always a new day, and we can always keep building a better future, and people will keep doing that together, because that's what people do. People are generally good people, and they will keep working together and building a better and more open future. I certainly agree with that. Thank you very much, Peter, for your fantastic contribution today. Thank you to those in the room who have contributed questions, thoughts, nods, grimaces, it's so much appreciated. And thank you to those watching, listening and contributing on Twitter down the line. We could just share in a round of applause together today. And I'll wrap up now saying thank you very much for your attendance. We've been the Open Data Institute. We'll be back here next week with another Friday lunchtime lecture um, around data the week after next. I apologize around use of data to solve problems of hunger in the world. So we do hope you'll join us, however that may be. Uh, thank you for attending today.
You've been listening to a Friday Lunchtime Lecture, brought to you by the Open Data Institute.